Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You know, he's had 19 clubs, never won a trophy, but he's played good football. Pep's seen something in him. He must see something in him to pick him, and he's no one of the best. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A-licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B-licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A-licensed coach who holds the FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways alongside a vast experience on individual player and team performance analysis. And as part of our insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Okay, welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Ben, as usual. But we've got a very special guest on the show with us, a very experienced manager at a professional level, working over a 1,000 games in league management. Um, we've got ex-Southampton, Wolverhampton Wanderers, and Cardiff City manager, Dave Jones. Welcome, Dave. How are you this morning, mate? I'm good. I'm very well, thank you. Perfect. So, Dave, you know, I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to get straight into it. Where did your coaching journey start? Uh, I, I played out in Hong Kong, and when I came back to um, my knee, I went there because I had a knee injury, and it stopped me probably continuing the top flight career here. I felt that way anyway, but I went out to Hong Kong for a couple of years, and then I came back, and I was looking around, like most ex-footballers do, I was looking around to buy maybe a pub or something like that, and go into a restaurant or go into that line of business. And I, I got a phone call off my old um, Everton manager, uh, Gordon Lee, and asked me would, would I go and help him out at Preston. So I went to Preston and I stayed a couple of years. And then basically my knee got really sore, but I still wanted to play, try and play. So I went to Southport as player coach. And I got the book there really under a guy called Brian Griffiths. And then we went on from Southport to Mosley. Um, and then mostly on to Morecambe. And in the time I was in the non-league, I had a fantastic time. Really enjoyed the company. Totally different to what I'd been used to. I mean, guys were getting up at five o'clock in the morning, doing their post-round and their jobs, and then training at seven at night. And I was still lying in bed and getting up about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. So I was living a totally different life to them or had been living a totally different life within the football world. And that's where the bug really started um, within the non-league. 
And I did have a fantastic time there. I really enjoyed my time with the guys and everything else. And then I just applied for a job at Walsall. Um, and they offered me the job. I was driving back up the motorway home uh, to my home in Southport from Walsall. And I got a call to say that, um, sorry, they couldn't give me the job. They're going to give it to a goalkeeper. So <laughs> I just... I was devastated, um, and then and just to clarify, off, sorry, that was a that the managerial job, is it? Yeah, yeah, uh, no, that was coach, that was youth coach, okay, right? Okay. Also, and then half an hour after that, I got another call off um, John Higgins. I used to play with his son Mark Higgins at Everton, and he asked me would I come down to Stockport and meet the manager Danny Bagara, and I did. And he offered me a job as youth team coach. And then within six months, he'd moved me up to first team coach. And that's basically where it all started. And I was there under Danny for four years as assistant uh, coach, assistant manager. And I learned an awful lot from him. Uh, I learned what not to do as much as what to do. And um, then Danny got sacked, went to Rotherham, and they offered me the post on a short term to see whether I wanted to do it, and I liked it, and I did, and that's how it really started my professional career within uh, at Stockport. But the time at non-league level was was a great learning curve for me because it it gave me an appreciation of how hard every footballer you know works and wants to aspire to get to that top flight, and it's not always possible. So, um, no, it gave me a good education and I really did enjoy my time um, within the non-league. So, but Stockport was probably the the one that kick-started everything and got me off to the Premiership and that. Fantastic. You know, just, uh, I'm sure we're going to go through the whole journey at some point. But just something that you touched on there, I think that's very key and I think for the listeners to kind of really take on board, is you talked about learning what to do, but maybe also learning what not to do. And I think quite often coaches and just people in general, we also we all look for the answers of how to get to a point, but maybe don't look for how to avoid certain things on that journey as well. You mind just talking to talk to that in terms of some of the things that you picked up and you thought, I've definitely got to avoid that? Well, I think I had a great mentor at Stockport. I had a guy called uh, John Sainty, who'd been at Manchester City, Norwich, and had a vast experience. Didn't want to be a manager again but was quite happy to be a number two. And John guided me through my, probably my first two years of management at Stockport. And although I had a fantastic time and anything I would have touched at Stockport at that time turned to gold, I, I could have fell in a bucket of whatever it was and I'd, I'd have come out smelling of roses. It's just one of them things you get in your coaching career. I had good players, um, we had good coaching philosophies and basically we we just went on a, a two-year spree. That was ridiculous, to be honest. But John guided me through because when I wanted to lose my head and have a go at people and rant and rave, he'd just pull me to one side, calm me down a little bit. Um, he was very relaxed until the final game when we were playing for promotion against Chesterfield. And when I turned around, he was breathing heavy in the dugout and couldn't speak to me. So it was probably the only time in my career I'd ever seen him flustered. But he, he was my mentor 
um, I would say. In the non-league, it was a guy called Brian Griffiths who had vast experience. So I learned an awful lot off them. Um, just about listening to people, listening to the players, what they had to say, engaging with them, not just within the football world, but outside, finding out what their interests were. Because every footballer turns up for work every day and you don't know what's gone on the night before at home and have they got problems. So I always have a, a landing here, he used to say to me, just listen to what they've got to say and then make your decision and then stick by it. And don't be frightened to change your mind as well. If you've said something and you're wrong, don't be frightened to admit that you're wrong. I think you get more respect off your players if you if you sort of admit that, look, we got that wrong today. I always blame the players if they get the result wrong, but you know, you've got to sort of just be honest with yourself and, and certainly be honest with the people around you because they're the ones that have to cross that white line and go and perform for you. And so that's what they taught me is just be be honest with yourself, but more importantly, be honest with the people that you're working with as well. Definitely. You know, you talked there about early on in your journey, maybe you're having to, um, I guess, manage your emotions a bit. You come across as a big, scary guy. Uh, a lot of people. Uh, but you know what? I think back to that moment where I met you in, I think 2017 was an LMA um, event, the Luminous Spark, one up at St. George's Park. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, the first impression was very different. <laughs> um, almost like a gentle giant. You know, how, how, how maybe, how's that impacted your, uh, I guess, your connection with your players at times? Do they, do they maybe expect something different from you and, you know, are completely almost blindsided to an extent by, your, by your, how you really are compared to how you actually come across? Uh, well, I don't, I don't really know because, I mean, you're telling me something that, you know, I'd, you know I, I don't sit there and think, you know, I've got to be a big, bad guy today going in and everything else. I think um, I, I, I always had it labelled at me in my career that I never I never had any passion because I, I didn't run up and down the touchline. I wasn't ranting and raving. I wasn't jumping. Um, what they got confused with, I've got plenty of passion. What I didn't show was any emotion. Mm. So I was too busy sort of analysing the game thinking about what I'm going to say, how can I change it? And if running up and down the touchline and jumping and pumping my fists and threatening people on the pitch, you know, made me a better coach, I, I would have done it. But I, I had to, as I said, I had to be true to myself. And sometimes, you know, my wife says to me, oh, you come across a bit dour and everything else. But it's because in, in my head, I'm, I'm actually playing the game on the, on the sidelines. And, I'm too involved in it that way. But if if I needed to blow, oh, oh, I can go. I can go with the best of them. Don't worry about that. And and as you say, being big sort of helps a little bit if you want. But um, I never really blew that often. It was more when I was disappointed in what we, if we didn't achieve something that I thought we, you know, it was there for them. But um, no, I, I, I you'd have. As I say, you'd have to ask other people about me, uh, my kids or my wife or something. But I think I'm quite gentle anyway. So, um, but if I come across that way, then it was never meant to be that way. And I just wanted to be myself. Just on that, then you know, any stories regarding how you've maybe had to almost any, anything better to reflect back on in terms of where you maybe have, I guess, lost your temper with a player or with a group of players because of a certain outcome, and 
thought actually maybe that wasn't the right approach. Oh yeah, you do that all the time. I mean, that's that's you, you can say things, and that's why sometimes you're best not to say anything after the game. I mean, you know, I've heard of managers locking the players in the room for two hours, and I don't know what I'd say. You you you've got such a short space to to get your information across. Certainly, a half time. You you've got such a short time span to get that over. I think someone said to me, it's not like four or five minutes out of a 15, 20 minute break. So you've got to get everything in. If you're ranting and raving and just blowing hot air all the time, I think players switch off. I know I'd, I had folding ears as a player. If the manager was shouting at me on a touchline to tell me that I'd misplaced the pass, I don't really need to know I've misplaced the pass because 40,000 people are telling me I've misplaced it by booing me and everything else. So I used to have what you call fold away ears, just listen, don't listen, and just get on with my job. So I always, John taught me that if you've got something to say, just say it at the right time if you can. And if you're going to blow, then blow the next day because then you'll have gone home, thought about what you're going to say and everything. And listen, there are times that you need to really, sometimes I used to try and start a fight in the dressing room just to get the players angry. Because they weren't performing. Oh, you were gentle. No, not with me. Ah, oh, <laughs> listen, I had some big guys that played for me. I was quite uh, good at getting them, you know, to to front it for me. But um, no, sometimes when I say a fight, I mean an argument, just so people could say what they wanted and go out and try and prove you wrong. There's no, listen, there's no magic formula to coaching. Right. There really isn't. You've just got to be yourself have good players around you, believe in them players. When you're putting them, I, I honestly can say I never put a team out onto the pitch. Didn't matter who was playing. I always thought I had a chance of winning the game. Brilliant. And just on that, you know, you talked there about players that being able to have that opportunity to maybe express some of their views and their thoughts and opinions. Just, can you mind just talking to how important you think that is, obviously, in terms of managing a team in particular? Yeah, you know, you've, listen, you've always got to communicate with your players. I always used to listen to what my players had to say, then I'll make a decision and say, I was right and we're going to do it this way. And that's what you've got to do sometimes. But no, we always ask the players, um, did they enjoy that? My coaches always ask the players, did they enjoy that training session? Or if they, if they said, oh, that was poor or whatever, try and make it better tomorrow. Because the players, if you engage the players in your, in your coaching sessions, you know, they're the ones that have got to go out and do it on the pitch. You might set something up that's just not working. Your players can't do it. And again, that's knowing your players. You know, it's no good playing, you know, wingers if you haven't got wingers in your football club. You know, and sometimes you put square pegs in round holes because you have to. But the majority of the time, you, you've got to fit your coaching and your team that you set up around the players you've got. You've got no other option. Um, and, and as a coach, you're there to try and get them better to get the results that you want so why not engage with them um, and I encourage all my coaches to do that because it's not just about me it's about the people you don't just build a team on the pitch you've also got to build a team off the pitch and I've been quite lucky in my career that wherever I've been I've always had good people around me um, because you can't do it by yourself anyone who says they do it by themselves are lying you need good people around you to enable to implement what you're 
what you're talking about, discussing with them, and ask them as well. They're not just there to pick the balls up and the bibs and everything else. They're there to do their job. That's why you employ them. So always engage with your coaches as well. It's very, very important. Just um, in regards to that, um, there's always like been a constant sort of discussion in terms of how, uh, you know, coaches and managers use those sort of support staff there. And I feel like even uh, when the discussion started, from the time when you say support staff, you just feel they're there to just support, whereas some of them have, uh, um, it's like the way that people say that Klopp has like managed his staff, that like he sees them as actually separate experts in it. So like he actually goes to them to see the information as opposed to them going to him. Um, how did it work with you? Were you quite balanced in the way that you've done it or did you have like the final decision and but they informed your decision when you were making it? Yeah, you have to have the final decision because it's your head that's on the chopping block. It's yeah. no good. It's no good. Then you know if it doesn't work, you can't turn around and say, "Oh well, he told me to do that." Mm. Um, I, I worked with a guy called uh, Terry Burton, and um, Terry Terry had um, strengths that I didn't have, and I had strengths that he didn't. And it, it's it's made, not being frightened to have people around you that are you know, better doing things than you are. And admit that, you know, don't 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 think don't bring them in and then not use them and they have a better strength than you. And that's your team that you build. It's like your football team, it's like your players. You build a team and everybody has a strength of how, you know, what they're doing on the pitch. You've also got to have that off the pitch. And uh, me and Terry were totally opposite in everything we did except one thing, football. You know, we got interviewed by the BBC when we got to the cup final once. And they were asking Terry, oh, you seem to get on really well. And, you know, what you do outside the game? He, he said, nothing really. He says, you know, Dave has a big car. I have a little car. He says, I walk my dog. He rides his horse. You know, I've got a little dog. He's got a big dog. You know, so it was all little things that he said. But the one thing we had in common was football. And we loved talking about football, planning different things looking at different ways we could make the team better. And um, Terry was, what's the best way to describe him? He was so, he'd go home of an evening when we discussed after the training session, which we did every day, about what we were going to do the following day. Um, he would go home and lock himself in the room and plan everything out. And then I'd come in in the morning and say, oh, we're not doing that, we'll do something else. So what Terry learned was to do two or three programmes and try and second-guess what we were going to try and do. And and I felt that was the way of keeping them on the toes as well. And then with Paul Wilkinson, you know, another assistant we had, and Alex Armstrong, we had Martin Margeson now, who's, you know, England goalkeeping coach and everything else. We had such a strong bond. Not, nothing could get in between us because players love finding the Achilles heel and if you're not playing then they attack that Achilles heel and everything else we were such a strong squad but then outside of our little group we had a bigger group which was the IT guys the fitness guys and everything else and we tried to include everybody but we had a little five or six strong group that um, we were always discussing always looking at different ways always challenging ourselves how could we be better? And I encourage that. 
And if I wasn't right, I wanted them to tell me. Mm. And I never hold, I, I didn't have any animosity because uh, it was football, it was business. So if I hadn't done something and the coaches felt I hadn't done something, then I wanted them to tell me. Mm. I never wanted them to be frightened of telling me. And I think that's something that you, you learn as you go along. You know, don't, don't be scared to be told that that wasn't right. Um, otherwise, you'll, you'll, your coaches aren't there for, not, as I said, for just bibs and balls. So you've got to be prepared to take um, some flack off them sometimes. Um, but we used to discuss it, have different ideas, and then I would decide which way we were going to go. And then once I'd made that decision, whether they agreed with it or not, they were 100% behind me. You've already kind of um, touched on it there uh, about like the reasoning of why you have like these sort of different personalities, different to yourself as well. About not, you know, not uh, the players not being able to find that sort of uh, hole where they can attack if they're not playing and stuff like that, and just, like mess up the dynamic. Was that like a conscious decision that you made? And also, you um you started to touch uh, there uh, the, at the end of it about the fact that. You're, you know, you're open to the feedback sort of thing, but like, I can imagine when you first started uh, your managerial career and you're, you know, you had, you're still learning your craft. How, how long did it take you to kind of, you know, open up uh, to other people's feedback and stuff like that deferred to yourself? I don't think you'd ever stop learning because, it, yeah. you know, we used to have a saying in that, you know, the game changed every minute. Not every day or every week or every month. It used to change every minute. You know, you could come in, you've, you've got your team set up and then someone's gone ill. So you, you always had to be prepared for uh, the unexpected more you know, than, than the expected. My, my, the coaches I worked with, um, we were all good friends. We were all... Uh, I didn't know... When I went to Cardiff, I didn't know Terry and Wilco and people like that. Um, and I only normally take, if I go somewhere, I only take one person with me. And I look at the staff that I'm, I'm going to work with. I think you've always got to give them an opportunity to stake their claim. Because you can take people with you that mightn't be as good as what's already there. But I think you should, also, you should always go with one person that you know, trust. Because then when you're not there, they can implement what you're trying to do. They know how you work. So I think that's important. So when I went to Cardiff, um, Terry, Wilco and Mar uh, Mags, they, they were already there and um, they had an opportunity to stake their claim uh, and they did and we became very, very good friends. Uh, had many arguments, uh, lots of arguments about the way we should do this and do that and what we think. But it's also important to have different people around you because a player might feel comfortable talking to you, but he might be comfortable talking to somebody else. And I think that, that that's important as well. And if, if there's something said and that player doesn't want me to know, then I, I, I wouldn't get to know. That, that was fine. I mean, the coaches would say, look, go and speak to, go and speak to the gaffer, go and, go and see what you think. But if he says, no, no, I'd rather you sort it, I was quite happy for that to happen as well because that was the trust that I had with the coaches and the trust that I had with the players. And I used to let the players govern themselves, really, around the dressing room. 
we'd put the ideas to them, but they've got to have a bit of pride about themselves and what, because it's their home, it's their their training ground, their their football ground as much as mine. So I, I try to put all that into them and build a bond that everybody was comfortable and, and, and not be frightened to, as I said, not be frightened to say something. Didn't agree with something, say it. It's no good festering away because then it just makes things worse. If you're not happy with something, then tell me and I'll try and correct it. If I can't correct it, I'll, I'll tell you. So that's what I tried, as I said, tried to implement uh, amongst everybody was just being honest way about going around things. Well, and you just touch on that, you know, you, you, you talk about some of your experiences dealing with players. And obviously, I want to take you back to maybe your, your, I guess, your first team, your managerial journey. Am I right in thinking that you started with Southampton as your first senior job, major job? Well, Stockport. Yeah, Stockport. And then I was two and a half years as manager there. And we had a, a fantastic two and a half seasons, which then propelled me to, to get the Southampton job in the Premiership. Um, and that's only because it's at Stockport we beat Southampton in the cup, um, and the chairman that's where he noticed me, and then he followed me for the rest of the season, liked what I was doing, and then um, offered me the job, which was, which was great because my we just got promoted at Stockport, we'd been to the semi finals of the League Cup, quarterfinals of the FA Cup, final of the, whatever it was then, the LDV Cup or whatever it was, the Shaper Van, I forget what it was. And I just had a fantastic time. And then um, I got the, I was on holiday and I got this phone call out the blue off my agent telling me that Southampton uh, wanted to speak to me. And I thought they were after one of my players. So I said to my agent, well, in a in a nice way, uh, with a few expletives, what the was he looking for? And my agent told me that he was on the line as well, and he could hear what I was saying. And he said he doesn't want one of your players; he wants you. Rupert Lowe wants you. So I thought, brilliant. Um, but you're going to have to go and speak to my chairman because I had so much respect for my chairman of Stockport. Mm. Wanted him to speak to him, and then my chairman of Stockport told me that he didn't want me to go; he wanted me to stay. And whatever Southampton were offering me, he would give the same. And and that was a you know a championship club then. And I just yeah. said to him, Brendan, listen, it's Premiership. I have to go. And yeah. his, the exact words were, "Well, thank Christ for that, because I wouldn't have been able to pay what they're paying you anyway." <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me all his blessings, um, and he let me go. And then that's how I started off in the Premiership. And so, you, you know, you've made the transition to Southampton now after a you know, successful spell at Stockport. What was, the, what was the major differences for you? First of all, moving from Stockport to Southampton, more so specifically, what, you know, what was then the old uh, first division to then moving into the Premier League? There was only 20 of us. And no matter what I did and where I went, uh, eyes were on me. I moved from... Um, a little fishbowl to a big fishbowl. No matter where I went, what I did, what my family did, we were scrutinised and everything that um, was going on. And my criteria was to go into Southampton and dismantle a very old squad. And they'd just escaped relegation. 
had a skinner to buy a goal difference, I think it was, with Man City, and Man City went down. Um, my, my criteria was to go in and dismantle and build a team. And that's what I had to do. Um, and I picked up some really good players and we had a, a really good time and I, I won manager of the year by doing that. But what was the difference? Not a great deal, to be fair. I played at that level, so I knew what to expect. And the biggest thing I found, wherever I've been as a coach, just be professional in everything you do. Um, if you put on good sessions and you're professional and you, you know, you're on, your coaches are on the training ground at the right time and everything's set out and everything's professionally done, you players can't have any arguments with you that you, you, you're doing it right. So I just sort of upgraded, really, in everything we did. And, um, and a good bunch of players there as well. They're a good, honest bunch, and they, they worked hard for you. And it was a club that was always going to be fighting relegation. As long as they stayed in the Premiership, they were happy. Uh, I, I remember them asking me where I expected to finish, and I said, top. And, and Lauren McMenemy was still there, and he asked me, well, Southampton's never going to finish top. And I said, well, we'll finish second then. We can't finish second, finish third. And he said, why are you speaking that way? I said, because if I f think I'm going to finish fourth from bottom, I might finish third and go out the league. So I'll aim for the top. And, that, and that's what I tried to implement wherever I went, was think, think that you're going to win it. And if you can't win it, then be second. But don't think the other way, because you might just miss it by one spot and then all of a sudden you're out of that division mm. so I always used to think and that's what I said to you earlier on no matter who I played I always thought we could win the game I always thought we had a chance you know some, sometimes you knew you were coming up against far better teams than you but why put a team out if you didn't think you had a chance you know you're just going to sit there for 90 minutes and expect to be battered you've always got to believe and you've got to give that belief to your players and that's what I always try to do. And that's what my coaches always try to do as well, I hope. Just on that, you know, you talked there a bit about having the mindset of, you know, going out there to win on every occasion or setting, setting the bar as high as possible in that respect. What would, you know, if you just kind of delved a, a bit deeper into that, what would you say your, your fundamentals are to your coaching philosophy in that, in, in that respect? I think be um, clear and will be very clear on what you're trying to put across to your players. Don't, don't give mixed messages. And uh, same with your coaches. You know, it's no good you as a manager saying one thing and your coaches are saying something different. So all be, on, all be in tune with each other, all be on the same, the same path. And now and again, you've got to come off that path. Don't get me wrong, because, if you, you know, we used to set targets. We had three sort of three ways of looking at the division, you know, when you start off, where you are at uh, maybe Christmas time, what you need to be done, because hopefully you, you, you are fighting for, for promotion. So just be clear and very decisive in what you're doing and what, what your goals and your aims are. And a lot of the time as well, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm saying engage with your coaches and your staff. Also let the owners know what you're trying to do. Also keep them informed. 
a lot of people when I've done a lot of LMA courses and done a lot of seminars, all the coaches moan about the chairmans are always at them and always phoning them. And you know, I remember one guy asking me, "What what you do? You know what you do when your chairman's phoning you every day at nine o'clock, wanting to know what's going on?" And you've got to be aware that you know you might be struggling, and the owner's putting all this money in and he's panicking. So why not give them information? So I said, break the cycle. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you phone him at eight. You know, if he's phoning you every day at nine, you phone him at eight and break that cycle because it does become monotonous and you've got to be in harmony with each other. You, the people above you have got to know what's going on to be able to trust you to try and implement them, what, what your football philosophy is or whatever. So always keep everybody around around you. And I'm talking not just your coaches and your players, but also the people that are employing you. Always make sure that they know what's going on. Because the, the, the worst thing in football is if your chairman phones you up and says, oh, I believe two of your players had a fight today. You know, what's that all about? Or the press have done something. So always keep them involved. Don't give them any ammunition to say that you've not kept me informed, why are you doing this? Because you've got to remember, it is their club as well. You're, you're working for them. So, again, don't be, don't be frightened as a coach to engage with the owners as well, uh, the stakeholders, because they're the ones who are going to keep you in a job as much as what the players are. Right. So, it, it's, it's being, like, being very clear and setting your goals and your standards Right, through, not just to the players, right through the club. Whether that be the cleaners, the tea lady, whatever, let them know and treat them with the respect that they all deserve as well. Yeah. It's very important. But I was brought up that way. My mum and dad brought me up that way. Be respectful to whoever you're speaking to. It's not, you know, and because you might have more than them or whatever, you're you're in a higher position. Don't. Don't use that as being, you know, look at me, I've, I've done this. Just be be right with everybody. And that's, again, I'll go back to when you first asked me the question. Just be honest with yourself. Because once you get an infection in your football club, I promise you, it, it will go through your football club like wildfire. And it's like the old saying, you get one bad apple, it will upset the apple cart massively. So let everybody know what you're trying to do. Keep the standards. And if people drop below them standards, tell them, warn them. If they don't adhere to that, then get rid. Because they're the ones that will cause you more damage. And whether that be a player or any of your coaching staff, any of your auxiliary staff, they all have to row the same way. They're the, they're that, they're the successful teams where everybody's in the same camp and not got different agendas I think um, that's uh, some good advice because it does feel it does feel like uh, when you look at these sort of projects that I've kind of felt in first team is when there's like a misunderstanding of what exactly is the um, intentions here and what exactly are the standards here whereas if you set something that's quite like um, strong in its framework then like the players the players know you know, know, know their limits sort of thing. And also, that, like, people always seem like it, 
um, they're looking at you and saying that, oh, because you set such um, firm standards that the players are restricted. But it's not really that. They actually have more of a foundation now to be uh, creative in that sense and add to it as much as they can. So that was, that was some good advice there in terms of, um, especially talking um, to the people above, because a lot of the times uh, when coaches are talking about their coach philosophy, they're talking about it just to the players. But like, the reality is the person, the person above that gave you the opportunity. Um, I just want to harken back uh, to your experience now. Um, so you've gone, you know, Southampton has happened and now it's Wolves. How did that come about? Well, I, I went through um, 18 months of hell um, with being accused of things I didn't do from my uh, past and that needed to be sorted out. So once that was sorted out and that was all over, I had three calls. I had a call from Barnsley, chairman wanting me to go there. I had a call from Norwich, they wanted me to go there. And then I finally had a call from Wolverhampton. And I felt that Norwich and Barnsley were fantastic clubs. But I just felt the best fit for me and what they wanted to do was, was Wolves. And I had uh, two or three interviews with the owners, uh, Sir Jack Hayward and his board. And I just felt that they, it was the right fit. And when I went there, they had something like 39 pros. And they asked me how many we would need. And I said, uh, eight. And they said, oh, I thought we'd need more than that. And I said, no, that's what you keep. And you get rid of the rest. And that season, uh, from Christmas onwards, um, was all about dismantling and then bringing in players that I thought were going to take the club where they needed to be. Um, so that was the plan from the start. Uh, why so many had to go? I just didn't think they were the right fit for the club. And I let some good players, but I had to build a team. And as you go in as a manager, there might be some good players in your football club, but they don't fit what you're trying to do. There was about three or four of them that had long, long-term injuries and hadn't played. Um, there's players that have been there a while and not uh, delivered the goods. Um, it, was a, it was a major sort of clean-out. There were staff that had built, as I said before, there were staff there that built little pyramids. So they had their own little way of dealing with things. So all of a sudden you come in and you, you're not on the same wavelength as them. Now either they've got to change or they have to go. And the ones that didn't change, they went. Because you know you you're setting out a way that you you feel is going to get the club back to where they need to be, and 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 that's not that the previous managers were poor or whatever. That's just you know because you know I took over from uh, an ex England manager, so it wasn't that he was a bad manager. He just didn't have, just didn't work out for him. Um, you know, he could have gone somewhere else, and it did work for him. So the club needed to change their philosophy because whatever they'd been doing hadn't been working. So, um, again, I laid out what I felt it needed to be done. And also, you've got to go in and, and look at things, how they run things. You know, it's... Um, I, I just felt Wolves lived in the past. They're always going on about past people, past players. 
um, what the what the club had achieved, but they hadn't achieved anything for twenty years, and so something wasn't working. And it takes it takes a little bit of bravery as well to go in and you know take the pictures down of Steve Ball and people like this that are you know folk heroes. Now I'm good friends with Stevie, but but Stevie wasn't going to help me because he couldn't play. So it was put the players' pictures up around the place that were playing and trying to get things done rather than, you know, put, put the past players in, in the museum because that's where I felt they should go. And that was a big decision for me because if it, if it hadn't worked, I, I would have been absolutely vilified by the supporters and everything else. But I trusted my players. So if I was going to put the, their faces around the place and put them at the forefront, they had to deliver the goods. And if they didn't deliver the goods, I had to find people that did. And in my, in my career, uh, whether I'm a sucker or not, but I've seen to have gone for the ways and strays and the people that no one else would touch. And I, I'd give them an opportunity. Um, and I've had gamblers, alcoholics, everything. But I believed and they believed in me because I give them the second chance. I can only give them the stage to perform on. And if they do that, then I know I've got a player that's going to die for me, really, you know, not in any terms, but, you know, you know what I mean? And, and that's what I basically did. And some of the players that I've had in the past will, will tell you that um, it was their last chance saloon, really. So why not have a go? And, that, and that's, how, that's what I used to look at. And I didn't have a, a great deal of money at clubs, so I had to pick and choose the right people that were going to come in and that, and and do the things and set the the tones that we wanted. And at Wolves, I had I had a great bunch of players. They didn't like each other half the time. They didn't socialise some of them with each other. They used to come in, do the job, go home. And that's what. And so if they were coming in to do the job, they wanted everything to be right. They wanted it to be spot on. And Wolves, I had some really tough, tough people. You know, your Nathan Blakes and your Paul Butlers and Paul Inces and people like this, Mark Kennedys, Dennis Irwins. They'd been used to everything being done right. So that's what we set the store. And the standards were really high. And the training sessions were always high tempo. Uh, and everybody always wanted to win. And that then transformed transferred onto the pitch and that's something else you got to look at you asked me the question before make your training sessions very competitive as well because you can't turn it on and turn it off in football so you've got to make everything so if they're doing it on the training ground they've got to then go and do it on the football pitch you can't have halfway so we used to make everything quite competitive um, so they knew there was competition right through the squad. If you're performing, you play. You don't perform, you don't play. Didn't matter who you were. And again, as a coach, you've got to be brave enough because you know you might have some really big players in your team that aren't performing. And there might be a youngster there is. So you've got to make that decision to throw the youngster in and you've got to believe in that. And then it's down to the experienced player then to get his, um, his act together. So I always try to do that as well. If you're performing, you play. If you don't perform, you don't play. 
Um, just just about that, like, how do you deal with that um, sort of uh, dynamic there where, um, you know, you have, like, a senior player that usually would play consistently and whatnot, and then, you know, you, you get to the decision that, albeit maybe because he's off form or that one particular game you don't feel he's right for, how do you communicate uh, such a thing to them? Or is it based more so on their sort of personality? Well, everyone's different. Everyone has a different personality. So you have to, again, that's knowing your players. Some players might need, you know, a right hammering sometimes. Other players, you don't get the benefit from, from doing that. Yeah. You, know, you, you, need, you need to work that out yourself with your players. You know, so sometimes, you know, there used to be a big saying, you know, um, pick people out in the dressing room. You've got something to say, nail the ones that aren't doing it. Well, that mightn't get the best out of that player. You might have to pull that player to one side and have a word with them. Or there might be a player that needs to be, you know, brought out within the group. So you as a coach, that's what you have to pick. You you can't just give everybody the same. And, you know, every, you'll always hear that everybody's the same. No, they're not. Because everybody has a different personality, different character. Mm. You're building a team around that. So you have to find a way of communicating with them. And if, that, if that's hammering them in front of other people, then do it. If it's not, then don't be frightened to go the other way. Um, you know, I, I've had players that had been used to picking out people that hadn't performed because it made them feel better. Mm. It didn't make the player feel better that was being hammered. So you've got, you've got to find the right way and listen you're not going to get it right every time you won't get it right every time but if you get it right the majority then you know again that you've got players that are going to that are going to believe in what you're trying to do um, and Wolves as I said were a really tough bunch of players because they expected such high standards of themselves as well as what people around them so uh, it was good. It was it was a good experience for me as well because um, you know there was some tough characters in there. You know they would they never socialised with each other. Some of them couldn't be bothered. And very strong characters. They all had different opinions, but again, we all had one goal in mind, which was to be promoted, and that was my job. And we spoke about that from the day I walked in the football club. This club should be in the Premiership. So we spoke. We never, you know. Sometimes you go into clubs and people say, "Oh, don't use the P word. Don't use the P word." You know, we can't do that. No, if that's what you're trying to achieve, then use it. So we set the standard, and if you fell below that, I'm going to find someone else. You know, and just, just on that, then, Dave. You know, you talk there about you know setting standards, obviously having high, high, setting the bar at a high level, and having high expectations of yourself. Um, but no matter what level you're working at, everyone goes through a bit of, uh, I guess, dealing with setbacks and adversity through their careers. And not, you know, I think it's important to highlight it's not just the players that go through that sort of thing, it's also the coaches. Um, you touched on there a little bit earlier about a, a difficult period in your, in your, in your journey. Um, now, without going into the specifics of the situation, how, you know, obviously... No, listen, ask me anything you want. There's not a problem. Yeah. You can ask me anything you want. I can always say no. I'm not going to answer that. So yeah, right away, yeah. I'll be trying to ask uh, me no, so you. Want. Just touching back on that that period of time, obviously when you were at Southampton, you know, you you you, you, you came up, up against some you know difficult alleg allegations to deal with. How exactly? 
know, what, what, what was going through your mind at the time, obviously in the midst of a Premier League season, um, and then having to deal with that situation that arose? I wasn't going to be beaten because I, I knew I'd done anything wrong. So I wasn't going to allow people to take away something that I, I'd worked all my life to, to achieve. Mm. And they were just trying to extort money. Basically, that's what it was. It was they were trying to extort money from me. But the, the people that helped, the, the Southampton people um, were fantastic. They cocooned my family. It was my family I couldn't protect. And that's what I, you know, because you're used to, it's not right, but as a manager, you're used to abuse from fans and saying things and everything else. So I never really heard that. It was my family I couldn't protect. But the Southampton people did. They protected my family as best they possibly could. Um, and I had the press living with me 24-7. They were always trying to find something. My young daughters thought it was just the norm to have the press camped outside my house and everything else. But no, it was, but I hadn't done anything wrong. So I just got on with my life. Um, and when that problem arose, then I would deal with it. But I had a job to do, and if I didn't do my job, I couldn't keep my family in the way that the you know the lifestyle that we used to. So no, I I was um, I was determined that I was going to continue to do my job, but also I had, I had this outside influence that I had to fight, and I wasn't going to let them beat me on that. And the support from my family and friends, and within the football world, if anyone in that life. Hadn't have believed it, that would have killed me more than anything. Yeah. So they were very, very supportive in everything I did. Um, so, you know, I've got nothing but admiration for the people. You certainly find out who your friends are. That's the Definitely. one thing I will say. But football's quite a, a, a cruel world as well. Players don't give you any leeway. So I remember when I got charged. And I went in the following day. There was a white T-shirt with arrows on and a set of handcuffs on me, on me peg. And that was the player's humour. That was to tell there to tell me that look, you know. I'm guessing. I'm guessing that player stayed anonymous. Who done that one? No, no, no. They were all fine. They were all no. Listen, the players were brilliant. They, they were one hundred percent. You can't live with people, and they not know you. You know what I mean? You it's impossible. So. Mm. No, it was it was a it was a period of my life that it wasn't an enjoyable period, um, but I wasn't going to let anybody accuse me of something that I hadn't done or whatever. So I was going to fight it. And, and the managers around me, Sir Alex Ferguson and people like this, Chairman's Bill Kenwright, they, they were brilliant. They phoned me all the time. Alex Ferguson said to me when we went to Old Trafford, "I'll walk out with you." I said, no, I'm all right. I said, no, I want to walk out with you. And I walked out with Sir Alex at uh, Old Trafford. I'm probably the only scouser ever to get a standing ovation from the supporters walking uh, out into... And he, and he stood by me. And then after the game, uh, we drew 2-2. Two, two. He told me I could walk back on my own now. <laughs> he was angry that I'd drawn the game. So, and Jim Smith. God bless him, you know, Jim Smith was fantastic. So the, all the managers were right behind me and they 
if they'd have believed something different, that, that would have hurt me more than anything. So mm. I, I just tried to continue on with my life as a football manager. But I was always going to be ridiculed by certain people who thought that it was football banter, as they call it. But I never really heard it. It was my family that did, because they understand. So it hurt them more than it did me, to be fair, because I just a stubborn old bugger who was just going to carry on and fight the world, you know, because that's where I was brought up. I wasn't going to, you know, let people beat me down that were accusing me of something that, I, you know, I hadn't done or whatever. And it was all about money, trying to take money off someone. So, no, I was going to fight mm-hmm. them all the way. It wouldn't have mattered if I was, I would have. And that's just the way I was brought up. And I think that stands me in good stead in my coaching because that's the way I wanted my teams to go out and fight and, you know, not be beaten. And never give up on anything. So, whether I sort of conveyed that to them in, in the way that I was, I don't know. But it, it wouldn't, listen, I could play game of cards with my kids. I wanted to win. Yeah. Playing football in the garden with my kids, but I was going to win. My wife would say, well, what are you doing? Don't let them beat me. That's it. Yeah. Just, you know, just on that, dude, you know, I think one thing that's really important to me, and I, I thank you, obviously, what, you know, be willing to talk about the situation in, in particular. But I think there's a lot of people out there who probably have been through situations similar to that, you know, in terms of maybe had allegations or accusations thrown at them that maybe they they've just actually got nothing to do with them. They're not even related in any way. And in today's culture in particular, you know, there's this whole element um, of cancel culture, yeah. which is basically, you know, as soon as something comes up and there's a negative attachment to it, well, we're just going to, it's almost a guilty until, um, until proven innocent rather than any other way around. And I think, you know, it'd just be interesting to kind of really delve a little bit deeper in terms of that support network and how important that was for you. Obviously, you know, We've all been through situations in where we've had to overcome some sort of uh, setbacks or you know, deal with some sort of adversity. And I think in that moment, they, your mind can only wonder in terms of, well, what does this person think of me? What does that person think of me? And you, you don't know, and as you touch them, they, you start to really realise who's truly on your side and who's maybe on the fence a little bit. You might just delve in a little bit deeper into how that support network actually plays a part in support, you know, you as a coach and not just as a coach, but as a human being, because I think, like I said, a lot of the attention is almost always on players and not actually the, man- the managers, the coaches and the, and the backroom staff, but also people as well. Well, I think it's coming more and more to the forefront now with um, lots of different issues because it, you know, certainly being, uh, I can only talk about football because that's been probably 95% of my life. But in every walk of life, every job that people do, they're under immense pressure. They're always under pressure. Uh, and I've done seminars where um, you're actually born with pressure. Because what's the first thing you do when you're born? You're actually, you know, you're looking for food. <laughs> you're fighting for air. So your body is actually conditioned to stress, funny enough. Um, and when I've done seminars and everything else, Trying to give you an insight is, um, you know, I, I use the, the saying sometimes, can you imagine that, you know, that antelope in the desert every morning must get up and think, Jesus Christ, if I don't run quick today, that lion's going to eat me. You know what I mean? So, and then you got to think, well, what about the lion? The lion must think, Jesus, if I don't catch that antelope, I'm going to starve to death. 
So there's pressure somewhere for everybody. It's how you deal with that. And as I said, I was lucky that the framework I had around me and my family and my friends and everything else were very supportive. And um, they listened and it was more about belief. You know, they believed in me. Uh, so that was important. But then if you go to a different level and you look about mental health and everything else, you know, I'm no expert at what triggers it. And that's why I'm saying that it's very, very important that you engage with your players because you might think that everything's fine and it's not. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but I had uh, Chris Kirkland who was going through a torrid time at Sheffield Wednesday. You know, and, and we were all there to try and help him in, in any way that we possibly could. And I hope that I, I did it right for him um, in a way. I had, as I said, I had worked with alcoholics, uh, gamblers, everything else. So I had to believe in what they, as long as they were trying to help themselves, as long as they were trying to help themselves and it wasn't always down to me and the people around them, they had to want to, you know, wanted to do it as well. And I thought that was important. So the network around you is, is vital. And if, if people need help, get them help. But as a manager, you've got to remember one thing as well. You're also there because you need to get results. And I was asked this question with the guy, uh, Michael Chopra. The Chops was uh, a big gambler and he, he'll admit that. Now, the problem is, as a coach, if you send him to help him out and he stops scoring goals, you're going to get absolutely mullered from the fans and everything else that you're main striker. So you've got to find the right balance. He's got to help him, but he's got to also keep scoring goals. Um, so it's finding that balance and, and helping them as much as you possibly can. But more importantly, they've got to want to do it as well. Because if you don't want to do it, you're wasting your time. I asked Alex Ferguson once, said, Alex, what do you do with a problem player? And he said, give it to someone else. Give the problem to someone else. He can do that because he's at Manchester United and he can go and get the best. But if you're at a smaller club, that person that needs help might be your best player. You're the someone else. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to try and that's that, that's a challenge for all coaches and everything else and certainly in today's world as you said earlier you know because you're frightened to say the wrong thing because you could upset someone um, doing the wrong thing you might have all the best intentions in the world in what you're trying to say and what you're trying to do but someone else can take offence to that so I think everybody at the moment, not just in football, but in all walks of life, everyone's on guard. Everybody's frightened to still say something. Um, I think you've got to say what you want if you believe it. And then if somebody takes offence to it, then try and explain why, why you've said it or whatever. But um, no, it's, it's difficult at the moment because of what's going on with it, not just as saying football around the world. It's, Everybody just seems to be trying to say something in case they, they upset somebody or it's not the right thing to say. And it might be totally innocent in what you're saying. And if I've ever said something wrong in, in my past or going to say something wrong in the future to somebody, it will never be meant 
to be wrong it'll be because I think it's right and uh, I just do that but uh, it, no it is difficult and certainly difficult coaching younger players as well very very you know what you do over night time if you're coaching somebody you're last person with that, that last player mm. what you do you can't leave them yeah. you know you, your first instinct is to take them home in your car you can't do that so you're constantly on your guard all the time um, so in some ways it's quite sad really but in other ways it is, is for, for you know the protection so it's very difficult certainly as a younger coach with younger players because there's so many rules and regulations that you have to adhere to mm. you know you think you know when I was in first team coach and I had a, I remember having a 16 year old player want to travel with the first team you couldn't put like when I was brought up I went in with Gordon West. You know, I, I to make sure his pajamas were put on the pillow and you know everything was right before he went to bed and I had to wake him up. And we go, you can't do that now. You know, that was the, the old ways that they used to do it. But you couldn't do that. So you move at the times, but it is difficult. It's difficult for everybody now. Uh, you just gotta think before you do anything. And that's quite sad in a way. Um but if it's the right way, then you do it, as far as I'm concerned. And that goes back to your coaching philosophy. If it's the right thing to do, then you'll try and implement it. Definitely. And just, you know, I just want to kind of take you back there. You know, you talked a bit there about your time at Cardiff, um, you know, your interaction with your, your experience with Michael Chopper and obviously some of the situations he went through. But, you know, I want to delve a bit deeper into your time at Cardiff. You know, you had a reasonably successful start. You managed to get to an FA Cup final as well. Can you just talk us through that a little bit? Well, Cardiff, again, was to go in and I took over from um, a team, a manager that had been struggling that year. They they got promoted the same time as me. Um, so... They they were. You normally a manager normally goes into a club. You don't normally f- get a club that's doing well. It's very rare. So when you go somewhere, there's always got to be a problem. When I went to Cardiff, uh, Ninian Park was old. It was run down. We um, we trained on a park that we used to call Dog Thingy Park. So we had to go and clear all the mess up before we could go and train on it and everything else. And they didn't have anything. But the plan was to build a football club, get a new stadium, get a new training ground. Um, we were 60 million in debt and we didn't have a penny in the pot. How do you do that? So we, we had to find players, one that would come to the club, uh, not for a great deal of money. So we looked at players that needed second chances. And that's how we got the players that we did. We got uh, players that were struggling in life, but probably needed a platform to get their careers back on online. And that's what we, we looked at. People like Jeff Whitley and everything else that now work for the LMA and everything else and the FA and do, and do fantastic. Um, I brought a player in who I turned them around that month much that he's, he's actually now a monk in Ireland. So I must have a great effect on people. <laughs> so we, we found people that were going to get the club to where we wanted to go. 
And then slowly after that, we started to get better players in. Built a fantastic uh, training ground, fantastic uh, football stadium, and got a team that got to the cup final. So it was a massive rebuilding job uh, in every department, ev everywhere, everywhere in the football club. And Peter Ridsdale did, did a good job, did a really good job. Um, and then they brought in Vincent Tan. They got the they got the buyer that they wanted. Club got to the Premiership, and it's now a big club. So it it was great. It was great to see a, a football club develop. Um, it wasn't just me. It was a lot of people behind the scenes that did that as well. I I, I was just a figurehead. Um, but for getting the team built and everything else, the football side was a great challenge to us all and the coaches did brilliant players did well and then they started selling players for big money built an academy that you know with the likes of Aaron Ramsey and all them have come from Joel Edley um, was was great it was uh, my actual words were I couldn't I was looking for a goalkeeper um, and all the scouts, when I went in, said, oh, they can't find one. And then I found out that um, Wolves had one, that top goalkeeper. Welsh international now and everything else. And I could, he lived down the road. And I couldn't believe the scouts had missed him. So I sacked all the scouts, got all new scouts in, and set the tone then that we do not lose any players from the Cardiff area. We we can't afford to lose them. We've got we've got to be the best. Then I found out the last big player to ever come through Cardiff was John Toshak. I thought that was crazy. So that's when we revamped the whole um, academy, and that's what I love doing as a manager. It's not just the first team I build. I love building the club from grassroots all the way up. That that's what I love doing. If, you, if you're looking for a short fix, don't employ me. If you just want, you know, like what Neil's done, going in at Middlesbrough and you just want that quick fix, that's not me. I've got to build. Um, that's what I think I do best. I, I love that challenge of building things. And I've done it wherever I've been. Did it at Stockport, did it at Wolves. You, know, you look at Wolves' training ground now and everything else. I did it at Cardiff, Sheffield Wednesday. It's just... That's what I like doing. I like building. Just on that then, you know, you talk about building there, you know, again, just coming back to your time at Cardiff again, you know, you spent a number of years there, um, arguably most successful year was probably in 2008, um, where you managed to, you know, guide the team to the FA Cup final. What was that experience like, you know, obviously getting to the FA Cup final? Well, nobody expected us to do it. Um, but you, you, you had the expectation set for everyone, right? Yeah. We're not going to get to the final win. We're going to come second. Well, every, everywhere we went, everywhere, every, every game we played. And then you know something's happening because you get on that roll. And, um, you know, it was just the players believe, started to believe in it more and more. Um, the fans were all engaging in it. But our priority was still promotion. And probably the cup final hindered that a little bit. Maybe the focus went from, you know, 
what we were there for was to get the club promoted to the cup. And I was trying to get it that the cup was helping us achieve the promotion. And we just missed out on promotion. You know, I don't know, it was three or four times. But um, there was lots of reasons why that happened as well. Because every time we got close to something, we had to sell a player to survive. So we could never get an established team for two seasons on the run. We always had to sell in every window to keep the club running. Um, but that experience walking out uh, Wembley in front, I'd, I'd experienced it as a player and I experienced it at uh, Stockport and everything else, getting to playoff finals and um, cup competitions. So I'd experienced that, but to actually in an FA Cup final, which I think is the best cup uh, competition in the world, was was great. And I think the players... But our cup final really was the semi-final. Because we come up against a very good Portsmouth team. Yes, yeah, so you touched on there about you know your final really coming up against Portsmouth in the semi-final really was your final. What, why is that? Because the day we had getting to the final against Barnsley was just special. It was... Um, to actually get to the final was... Um, we just felt the football club had hit where we wanted to be. Um, we honestly believed that we were going to beat Portsmouth. Um, made a mistake, the goalkeeper, and cost me the game. But we we didn't perform as well in the cup in the final as what we did in the semi final. And I just felt the final was our semi final. That's that sounds daft, but. Um, I think just to get there was was an achievement, um, but unfortunately we didn't we didn't win it. And I thought we I, I I thought we had a great chance of winning it. I really did. Thought we were going to go all the way, um, but it didn't happen. But the for me the semi final was um, was far better for the football club because it propelled the club to a position within the global football world that they hadn't done for many, many years. Uh, and everybody started talking about the club, uh, everybody, um, which was great. It was great for us. And, and, and it allowed us to bring in players like Robbie Fowler and Jimmy Floyd Asselbank and um, people like this uh, because, you know, they, they'd never come to the club before. And then we, we started to sell, everyone started to watch the players. And we started selling, you know, Roger Johnson's, your Chopras, people like this, the Aaron Ramsey's, your Ledley's, for big money. And that, that cleared the debt. But it also enabled us to build, build a new stadium, build a training ground and everything else. So um, that run sort of propelled the football club. We, I just couldn't get over the line. Um, for the promotion. I felt if we'd have kept the players uh, for the following season, I felt we'd have got stronger and we would have done it. But because of circumstances, I also understood that we had to sell. We had to sell every window. and We had to, to make at least five or six million every window. So, of course, everyone's going to come for your best players. But I just, I just wish we'd have been able to keep them for one more season. And then I know we would have done it, but we didn't. And then when Vincent Tan come in, 
they didn't have to sell players. Then they got to where they wanted to be, which is the Premiership. So in a way, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I, I always leave a football club in a far better position than when I went there. And I've been in the way that I've done that. And just, you know, just, you know, come back to the FA Cup journey now. You, you, something you said there, you know, you felt like something was happening there. There was a bit, you know, a bit of a, I guess, a vibe or something in the area in, the, in that moment in time. And something was, something was going on. But how is it in those times that you feel like, you know, as a coach, you need to manage your players' expectations and really not take it, I guess, too far and maybe take it one step at a time in that respect? You know, what, can you mind just talking to that a little bit? In what, I mean, as you've got to remember that um, although I'm their friends, hopefully I'm not as well because I'm going to make decisions that, you know, I'm going to leave them out or I'm going to sell them or whatever. Um, so there's, there's a cut-off line. Um, that group of people um, I had a very, very strong bond with, just as close as I had with the Wolves ones. So as a coach, you get a feeling that something's happening. You do get a feeling that things are happening within the club, within within uh, the players themselves. Um, but you also know within that, if you become successful, you're not going to hold on to them. And I didn't hold on to them because we couldn't. And that's, that's my regret at Cardiff, is that... And never kept the players um, to take them to where the club wanted to be or should have been. And listen, we missed opportunities. You know, we should have won the playoff final against Blackpool and everything else. But we got a few injuries which hindered us. So a little bit of bad luck along the way. But for we set a way of playing, a standard. It, it, it enabled the club to bring in a big investor. Um, which was which was which was, I was there. I, I, I had eight years there, which was fantastic. And to see, I can show you how it was when I went, and show you when I left, and it's totally different. I mean, Ninian Park was the only good thing about Ninian Park was the pitch. Everything else was just falling down. It's it stunk, smells from drains. Oh, you wouldn't believe. Uh, training ground, no facilities, eating out of cartons and everything that we, we tried to do. But we sold the dream to the players that we were bringing in to be part of this. Mm. And that's what I did at Wolves. Be part of the dream, not where the club want to be. No one can take that away from you. If you're successful, no one can take it away. And, that, and that's what we were setting there. Um, so... Again, it's setting the tone. Everything's about setting your tone, setting your standards and not falling below them and, and setting a path. And you might have to come off that path but as long as you go back to it, as long as you know what you're there for. And you can lose, listen, you can be successful and lose sight of what you've actually achieved and what you're doing. And you become, you know, loose with it all and then you start to lose the grip of it. Or you might go somewhere and it just doesn't work out. You just haven't got the tools to implement it. Yeah. So you've got to be aware of that as well. And, and don't be frightened as a coach that it doesn't work out. Learn from it. 
and that's what I said earlier on. You, you, you learn what not to do as much as what to do. They're your experiences of, of I'll make sure. And when, you know, when I got to the cup final, I, I, drew, I drew on all them experiences, cup games that I'd had before. My experience as a player getting to finals and everything else. My experience as a coach getting to So I drew on all them experiences. And the only people that had played in finals and stuff like that uh, getting there was the coaching staff. So we had more experience than the players because we'd been there, done it, seen it. So we, we handed that down to them and they took that on board. Um, so we did, uh, again, it, it's just trying to put all your experiences into one hat and mix them all up and hope that you come up with all the right formulas. With people around you, hundred percent. And over the over, you know, over the course of the years, and you've had a quite a long career as, as a manager, in particular, you know, in a thousand league games. Career, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me and you both, man. There's little bits here and there. Um, but you no, know, I really want to. I guess understand what what's helped it maybe keep you inspired and motivated to keep going, um, and just I guess yeah, just keep bouncing back and keep just keeping your foot in the in the game in that respect. Just being competitive, I would think. I just you know I always want to. You know, football is great because you always think you can do a better job than the person that's got the job. Um, it's when you get in there you think oh my god what have I, what have I done but um, I, I don't know what drives me on I, I just think I just want to be successful I just, I just want to do it right um, just keeps me going I think it's it's important and, and now that I've got this vast my, my head's ready to explode I've got all these ideas I've got all this thing all this experience and I, I want to give that to people as well. And, and the biggest thing with coaches at the moment, certainly young coaches coming into the game or young managers, they're frightened of taking um, some sort of um, knowledge from someone like myself or whatever because they think you're after their jobs. So they're frightened to bring you into a football club to give you that little bit of experience, to, give, to be a soundboard, and because you've been there, you've seen it, uh, just like I had with John Sainty. So a lot of younger coaches are frightened to use that experience that's around. There's a lot of people out of work that have got that experience, but they're always frightened if they bring them in and they do well or they don't do well, they're going to lose their jobs and that person's going to get it. Now, I think that's crazy because you should use what experience is there. If it's going to help you, use it. Because if you don't, you know, if you, if you bring someone in and it doesn't work, you're going to lose your job anyway. So why not bring someone in that, that can help you or guide you um, and do and just say, look, just slow down here a little bit or go and speak to that person or go and speak to that player. You still make the final decision, but why not use that experience that's out there? Um, and that's, that's what I've been doing a, a lot the last few years, I've been helping some younger coaches um, in, in what they're trying to achieve. And just say, look, just step back a little bit. Um, because it, it's, it is difficult. Because every, everybody wants instant success. And not everyone can have that. So 
how are you going to go about it? How are you going to build? What's your relationship with the chairman or the owner or the stakeholders that are putting money in? They're all the things that you've got to, to adhere to. Now, a little bit different because when I started off, you did everything. You did the coaching, you did the recruitment, you did the wages, you did all this. Now you can have a technical director, sporting director, financial guy, so they've got them all together. Well, you've done, I've done all them roles. So I've got some experience within that. So why not use that to, to help you? And listen, you might say, no, I don't want to do that. That's fine. But never be frightened to get as much knowledge as you possibly can. And that's the one thing I, I, I would say that I was never frightened. I was never frightened of bringing someone in to work with that I thought, oh, he's going to take my job. Or I might lose my job to him. I never, ever felt that with anybody I ever brought in. I was confident enough in myself to bring in that experience that they, they might have won more things than me. But don't be frightened to use it because it might make you a better person and a better coach, but also might make your team better as well. So that that's be my advice to any young coach. Don't be frightened to go and get help from someone or listen to somebody, what they've got to say. Um, you know, I've, I've heard it so many times, oh, die on your own sword. Do it your way and everything else. But your way mightn't just be right. It might be right, but get get another point of view or help you. Same when you're struggling, you know, and everything else, because it's not just struggling with on with the results. You're then going home. You're then with your family. You're then kicking the dog. You're arguing with your wife. You know, you're arguing with your kids. There's all them things, and we've all been there. With a young coach and young manager starting off. You've got all that to, you know. I I live with Mrs. Alex Ferguson. Because I go home and she said, why'd you do that? You're doing that for, why did you play him? Why you also, I'm like, well, shut up. So I've been through all that, you know. You know, Your kids coming in and saying, oh, dad, my me, me mate said, why did you do that? Why did you pick him? And it can get to you, you know. So it's important. Get, get the people use use all the knowledge that's out there as you can yeah. why not gain as much knowledge but you can go as many courses as you want which is fantastic but you've still got to get out in front of them people and deliver that what you're trying to get across yeah. you know and be you you know my, my idols were you know Sir Alex Ferguson Brian Clough you know, two Liverpool people really, which is hard for me to say because I'm an Evertonian, was Bill Shankly and and Kenny Daglish, Howard Kendall. They're the people I look I looked up to. I didn't want to be them, but I wanted to achieve what they'd all done. But I couldn't be them because I'm me, and I think that's important. You you be you, and, that, and that's what I tried to say to you before. So that that'd be my little bit of knowledge to pass on to someone is look don't be frightened to gain experience or listen to what someone's got to say because they might have just done it and might just help you so that'd be my little nugget of just listen to them because i as i said maybe i was lucky i had good people around me all the time uh, and just on that you know you did you know as we start to wind down and i just want to take you back to maybe the start of your coaching journey you know, go, let's go back to stockport now now, you touched there about, you know, potentially having a little golden nugget, but some people kind of take away there. But if you could go back and talk to yourself 
taking that first role at Stockport, what would be one of the messages you'd, you'd want to be able to give yourself then? Oh. Well, under Danny Bagara, when I went as a coach, um, things he did were like, you know, he taught me how to make cheese on toast the right way, how to mop a floor, how to clean the toilet, and how to show the kids all that. I'd never be frightened. You know, I was above all that. You know, I've played for Everton. Why are you telling me to do that with the kids? So what I learned was to be, you know, not everybody could be like you. Not everybody can play for Everton at the highest level or whatever. So always give them time. And sometimes when I went as the youth coach, certainly at Stockport, I was expecting them to do what my standards were. Um, just give them a little bit more time. Just just have a little bit more belief in people um, than just make a, a snap decision there and then. And I think when I first started off, that's what I used to do. I'd make a snap decision whether they were going to be the right player or not. Sometimes giving them a little bit more time and letting them relax and be more comfortable around you uh, would help them in a way. But Stock, Stockport's probably the wrong club to probably pick on because, as I said, I could have touched anything and it would have turned to gold. It was just one of them two years of, it didn't matter what I did. It, every player I brought in seemed to be a good player. It was it was um, just thinking. When I went to Southampton, um, it was a different ball game. And I think sometimes you make snap decisions on players that you should have just sat back a little bit and given them a little bit more time and um, not pass judgments on them as quickly as what you did. And I think you do that as a coach sometimes. You, you see a play and you think, no, it's not for me. But you go and see in the second or the third time, and it might be. So that that's what I learned more than anything, was don't just go off your first impressions. Go and have a second or a third look or something like that. Um, and that's, that's the way uh, I, I hope I continue to, to be as a, a coach. You know, just, you know, kind of, again, you know, it's a real key, I guess, message to kind of give to yourself at that point there. You've now been in management for a number of years, probably before I was even born, to be honest. But um... You don't look it. You must have had a tough milk round or a paper round, then you. Oh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting... So you obviously said a, a large part of what you're doing now is going to be supporting some of those younger coaches and younger managers and almost, uh, I guess, acting as a mentor or, or a soundboard, as you put it. But what's next for Dave Jones? Well, in this country, I would, um, I would like to be sporting or technical director or football director, whatever, you know, that, that sort of role to not just help the manager, but help the club and build a club from grassroots and, and everything else. I would love to do that. Do I still have an inkling to manage? Yes, because I don't think that ever leaves you. If the right opportunity come along, I would seriously consider it. My wife wouldn't. Um, she'd rather me go down the other path of sporting or technical director. I would, I've still got an itch to probably coach abroad 
Uh, I've done a couple of um, dossiers for different countries and I could cry sometimes from what I see uh, how they go about trying to start from grassroots all the way up to senior level. Mm. I, could, I could cry on, on, on what they do. So I'd love to do something like that. I'd still love to manage abroad, coach abroad. Anywhere in particular? No, no. Uh, I've always had boots will travel. I went home when I was playing once and said to my wife, right, we're off. She said, oh, where are we going? I said, Hong Kong. <laughs> She's, well, not down the road? No. Not just down, you know, London, something like that? No, let's go to Hong Kong. And, and packed our boots up and we went. We had two young children then and we went. So I'm not frightened to go anywhere um, in the world and coach or do something within football. Never. But I do cringe sometimes of what I listen and what I hear. And I think if we're not careful in this country, I think we'll lose touch with grassroots football. I really do. And I'm a big believer in grassroots football because that's where I was, you know, I got my opportunities and that. And I think we've got to seriously look at it and have a, another thought, plan of what we do. Whether that be the way the pitches are, because where I live now, last year with the rains and everything else, the season was probably abandoned. So whether they look at AstroTurf pitches for kids, engage more with them, whatever, I don't know. But certainly something's got to be done, otherwise we'll be losing generations of kids playing football. I'm a big believer in grassroots. Love the non-league football. Think it's fantastic, uh, and what people do and everything else. And I love the senior football. So I'm open to everything, really. I, I never close my ears and eyes on anything. Um, so around the world, if it's the right fit for me, I would go. Or if I thought it was the right fit, I would go. Uh, so. I've still not lost that itch that I want to coach and I want to manage. But in this country, I think I've got probably more to give now on the sporting, technical or performance and helping a younger manager or whatever to hopefully achieve you know, some of the things that I did. There's nothing better than, you know, well, listen, you're all coaches. There's nothing better feeling than winning a football match or winning your first trophy or whatever. There's no better feeling. And I know which feeling I like better, whether being successful or being not. And it's it's a bug. And I don't think the bug ever leaves you. And that doesn't matter what level you coach as well, by the way. No, because there are some coaches that are fantastic with kids. I was never really a kid's coach. And, and Danny Bagara saw that when I went to Stockport because I was only youth coach for six months. He thought I was better with the first team. And so, again, I've got a lot to thank him for because he saw that in me and propelled me into, straight into the first team. Mm. And, and I think it helped being successful as well because he was successful in his own right and I, I was part of that. I enjoyed that. So, I, th I think... You know, if you want to be a coach, you know, find your level. Because I've not got an eye. I, I couldn't pick up a kid at um, 10, 11 or 12 years of age. I haven't got that eye. And I'll openly admit that. Unless it's a messy or 
whatever, you know, that stands out. Like my grandson's five, four, five. I'm telling you now he's going to be a player. Right. My brother, who's 18, is, you know, he's a scholar. So it's in the blood. <laughs> I haven't got that eye unless they're really special. But you give me a 17-year-old and I'll put money, you know, I'll back myself that I'll say whether what level that kid's going to play at. Mm. So I think just on that, you know, something really is that actually being, having that self-awareness to maybe understand what your strengths and areas, you know, areas of development may be and really being true to yourself. And I think something you touched on earlier in the conversation and then having those other members of staff around you, other people around you that maybe can, uh, I guess, in, to some extent, maybe fill the gaps that you've quite, you haven't quite filled for yourself. Um, so I think it is about having that collaborative approach, but also most importantly, being self-aware and realising what do you bring to the table as a coach? Where do you fit on that spectrum? Yeah. Like, I think ultimately a lot of coaches, we've all at some stage maybe had that dream of when we wanted to manage in the Premier League and whatnot. But in actual fact, as you touched on there, some people are just great with kids. They might actually be better working in the foundation phase and there's other coaches who are on the other end of the spectrum who might actually be fantastic at uh, supporting young adolescents in, into becoming, I guess, adults and maybe supporting them from that side of things. And you know, maybe not they're not so much focused on the technical, tactical side of stuff, but more maybe on the social and psych, psych side of things. But I think it's really important, that, you know, I, really summing up what some of the things you said there about knowing where you fit in um i think it's real key you, you not to be frightened of having people around you they might be better at doing things than you mm. oh, you you've got to be aware of that uh, that's just not something not better than the thing that you're claiming to be good at <laughs> no not really it's just I, i've been lucky in my career that as i said i've had good people around me that i know have been stronger at doing things than what i have uh, yeah you know, so what I'm saying is don't be frightened of doing that, you know, because that, you know, listen, as you as the head coach or the manager, you know, whatever type you want to use, it's you who gets all the accolades. But you've also got to be aware that you haven't done it on your own. Yeah. I'll take, listen, I'll take the trophy, I'll take the award and everything else. Don't get me wrong on that. No, I'm, you know, I'm going to take that. But, I'm also aware that it's not just me, it's, it's the people around me as well. And then, you know, I'll say to my staff, listen, you know, thanks boys or girls, thank you for this, you know. <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> all of them, but it's going in my trophy cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, but it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's also, you can't, they're, they're an extension of you. Definitely. You've got to remember. If, if they trust you and you're trustworthy with them, you will you will go on that that train journey. And I've been on train journeys that have been up and down, but eventually it's going to get to where you want to be. And if you've got people around you that believe in that, then they'll they'll do everything that you want them to do, and they'll believe it as well. And and not to be frightened to tell you, look, this isn't working. Mm. Have, a, have a rethink and you might say no we're going to keep doing it and keep doing it or you might sit back and say hmm, you might be right and that's what you've not to be fearful of and that's what happens with a lot of younger coaches that I've found when you do you know uh, the, the courses with them or you speak to them it's my way they've been told do it your way you know die on that sword no well that, that might be wrong mm. think of, you know have a little think of this go on what about trying it this way? Uh, 
And then you come back and say, no, I'm going to do it my way, then fine, that's the decision you make. But Definitely. give them another way of maybe going about it. Listen, you've not won in 10 games, why haven't you won? You know, it's just unlucky. Or I think sometimes, like you say, just playing devil's advocate sometimes, just to offer a different yeah. perspective. And that's a soundboard. Yeah. And, that, that, and that's what your assistant's there for and everything else is to sound off on and shout at and everything else mm. and argue with. And then you walk away and think, hmm, you might have a point there. Mm. And just on that then, you know, if, if, you know, if we gave you 60 seconds now to say, you know, wrap up a golden nugget for some of our listeners to kind of take away, you know, you know, there's been, there's been some plenty, plenty good ones so far in this conversation. I'm sure certainly for myself and Ben, um, and hopefully the listeners would kind of take away, but if you kind of had to add one really package that for us, what would that be? For any coach, maybe look for any coach, for, for senior coach, make sure you get the right people around you. Recruitment, recruitment is so vital. And not a junior football and everything else. You know, if you, you're running the local team, you know, it's, it's still down to recruitment, isn't it? Still got to get the best players in. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're at the league clubs, then make sure you get the right people in the right positions to do the right job. There's so many people in football at the moment that are in jobs that aren't fitted to it. And then they wonder why the clubs aren't doing well. It's because uh, you haven't got the people in the right place, in the right jobs. You know, it's 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 that, and it's for you to be able to pick that. Now, I I I don't know what how how you do that. Yeah. Uh, I I wouldn't have listen. I'd be lying if I told you I knew how to go and pick that person. I think you've got to have that feeling and then put them in the position if you think they're the right the right things to do. Um. Sometimes, sometimes I make a decision in football on, on just a gut feeling. Mm. It's the right thing to do. You know, I, I always remember once, my, 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 at half-time, I was 4-0 up. My coaches told me, I'll bring off, you know, we've got another game next week, bring off such and such. And, and I said, no, no, no. And, oh, yeah, OK, bring them off. And I brought them off. And then we were hanging on at the end. We drew 4-0. I was hanging on at the death. And I turned around to my staff and they were going, oh, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was looking, but I would have made the changes anyway. So don't look for excuses. Just if you're going to make a decision, stand by it, and then take the flack if it hasn't worked, and then try and make it better the next time. Don't don't pass it on to someone else. You you make the final decision, and stand by it. And uh, I think there's enough people who can blame everybody else for something. But I think that'd be my just. Take it on the chin. If you've made the mistake, take it on the chin. Just don't do it the next time. Uh, you probably will. You probably yeah. will in coaching. There's no, there's no right way and there's no wrong way. It's what's successful and what isn't. You know, it's. I, I had a comment last night. Uh, the guy who's gone to Man City. You know, he's had 19 clubs, never won a trophy, but he's played good football. <laughs> you know. Pep's seen something in him. He must see something in him to pick him. And he's you know, one of the best. Mm. It's not just always about getting that person who's been successful. He, he might see something that is right for him, that Definitely. he needs. And that's what I'd say. Get the right people around you that you need. Mm. You know, and, and wants to work with you. And if, if their agenda is, I want to do well and be a manager somewhere... I'll be fine to that. 
Uh, well, they're not stabbing you in the back, and you know, oh, he's not doing very well here. You know, to the owner, and and, and that's where your trust comes in. Don't be frightened of getting people in that have got ambition as well, because mm. that helps you as well. Definitely. Do you think? And just you know, just to kind of finish up now, you know, got a quick fire round to you. Go on. Best player you've you've come up against as a manager. As a manager, oh, there's going to be some big ones here. That's what there is. I mean, I, I mean, there's that many. Um, I remember coming up against Messi in the pre-season, <laughs> <laughs> and it ended up a mess. Yeah, when I was at Southampton. He, okay. was, he was unbelievable. Um, but listen, and some of the players that have been in the Premiership when I was in the Premiership were, you know, a top, top draw. So there'd be too many. But he, he, he was uh, to watch Messi in a pre season. It wasn't pre season, so it was a close season game. was like, mm. you know, five foot six of, you think, oh, he doesn't look much, but oh my God. What a player. Um, and then you got Ronaldo when he was at Man United and all that, you know, top, top draws. Definitely. Top player. Most, most difficult player you've had to manage? Most difficult? Jesus. I've had many. But then I haven't. I can't. I've never really had a problem player. I've always seemed to have gone on. Nathan Blake. Okay. The most opinionated person I'd ever come across. But <laughs> uh, nice guy and everything else. I used to enjoy my battles with him. Brilliant. And then lost one club that you would hope to manage that you haven't had the opportunity to. Oh, God blind. <laughs> I always thought I was going to end up at Tottenham once. Uh, I don't know why. It just seemed to be a club. Uh, I had the opportunity to go back at Everton and I didn't take it. Because I'd only just gone to Southampton, so I'd love to go back to Everton in some sort of capacity, because that's where I was brought up. That's, you know, that's, my, that's my club of support and the club that gave me my, my start. So it'd be nice to finish there, but um, if it didn't happen, uh, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. I think um, that'd just be a dream, really. And just the last one, Dave, I don't know if you've got any social media handles or anywhere listeners could get in touch with you if, if they wanted to. Um, I post. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, guys. Another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series, where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated. Please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, Get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.
save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.